Let me get this sheet belt on. Thanks, Sean. Sorry. I'll be quiet. No, no, no. I love your voice. And my taint. Chalupas. Chalupas. Do you want to get some chalupas? If you want chalupas, you come on here. And I will give you everything that you don't fear. Chalupas. Chalupas. Everybody wants chalupas. If you want some, you know to come now. I will show you how. Yay, 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 yay. Wow, that was awful. Awful, even for you. This is Rish Outfield, and this is the Rish Out cast. It's 2020. The sun is shining for some reason. We had some fog earlier, but the, uh, the sun seems to have chased it away. I am in love. <laughs> uh, I've been writing pretty much every single day. I finally put out The Calling Reunion. I actually worked on the third story yesterday, just jotting down some ideas of where I thought it could go. I am in love. And uh, I'm in a good mood. Right, Rish, Rish. Yeah, I think you're lying. Okay, well, well, we had fog yesterday, but today the sun is shining. Yes, you're, you're right. I, I was trying to remain positive with like, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Okay, what, what are you talking about? You said you were in love. Oh, well, that was not in love the way that normal people are. What, does it involve a stamen, a pistol, and pollination? Yeah, something like that. Normal and you. They don't belong in the same sentence. Okay, so I was lying there. Uh, do you have a problem with something else I said? Yes, the sun is not shining. Well, it was. I put on sunglasses and now the clouds have obscured the sun. But it was shining when I no, said... No, it wasn't. <clears throat> okay, so what is left? Uh, I did, you haven't put out the calling reunion. God damn it. Look, by the time this episode airs, I will have. I finished it last night. I stayed up until 4 o'clock recording all of the last chapters and the author's note. And so I am done. Oh. I didn't record the uh, copyright bit at the end. See? You lied. And all that is left is that I'm in a good mood. <laughs> I took care of that one too, didn't I? <laughs> well, while he laughed, I guess I'll welcome you to the show and tell you that uh, I'm going to do the uh, first half of a, uh, a novella today. Uh, fake Sean. Fake Sean, are you all right? Okay, well, that serves you right. There are a couple of different types of the Rish Outcast that I put out. There are the conversation episodes. There are the short story presentations. There are plugging something that I have put out. There are the episodes I label TMI, where I, I talk about something personal in my life. Then there are also these episodes that I have labeled Pout of Competition, which is when I'm presenting a story that I wrote for a contest, uh, which invariably I lost. And this one is technically a Pout of Competition story because I wrote it for the Journey Into podcast. They had a contest 
And the rule of the contest was you had to write a story and submit it with journey into as part of the title. You know, journey into mystery. Journey into the forbidden lavatory. And uh, Marshall's a good guy, and I, I have no doubt he would have ran this story in its bloated entirety had I sent it to him. But I never did send it to him. It was just too long. I missed the deadline anyway. And I also didn't feel like it was something he'd be overjoyed to put out on his podcast. But anyhow, I'm going to run pretty much the first half of the novella Journey Into Another Dimension via a portal beside a truck stop restroom. Now that might not actually be the title. Fake Sean, what, what is the title? Journey Into Another Dimension Through a Portal Near a Truck Stop Restroom. Why is that hard to remember? Touché. Douche in your case. Yeah? Okay, so uh, it's a long story. I'm going to run quite a bit of it today. And I hope that you enjoy it. There is... Should I warn them about the scatological... Scatological uh, ramifications in the story. Yeah. Now, let them discover it on their own. <laughs> no, no more laughing. Uh, I'll meet you on the other side, guys. Journey into another dimension through a portal near a truck stop restroom. Written and narrated by Rish Outfield. Honey, there's a truck stop off this exit, Marin said softly. Would it, uh be okay if we stopped? We've got half a tank, her new husband said, glancing down at the dashboard. I know, but I, uh, I sort of need to tinkle. Tinkle? Yikes. They'd only been together for months. Married for two days, but Morgan would never have expected that word to come out of her. Marin had always been submissive, so unsure of herself, it had frankly been one of the things that had drawn him to her. But enough was enough. Baby, if you need to pee, just say so. You don't need to be embarrassed. I know. I'm sorry, she said, adjusting her thick glasses. Could we? Please? He signaled, pulled into the right lane, and they got off the freeway. Their honeymoon was at the halfway point, and it had gone well, but he'd expected she'd be more confident now that there was actual proof that he loved her, that she was valued, that he wouldn't leave her side. Ah, well. He supposed that's what a lifetime together was for. He drove the car into the lot, past the gas pumps, and parked it by the doors. She got out when he did, even though he tried to run around and get the door for her. "'Sorry,' Marin said, nodding. Ever since their first date, he'd always tried to get the door for her, hoping it would build up her sense of self-worth. But if anything, it seemed to make her feel less capable, less secure in her own ability, though he didn't know why. "'I'll try to be quick,' she promised, and he nearly told her to take all the time she needed. 
but he knew that would only embarrass her, as though going to the bathroom were something to be ashamed of. Morgan went to the soda dispenser to get a Mountain Dew. They had that rare red kind he couldn't get enough of, while Marin went to the back of the station, where there were three identical doors, one marked Gents, one marked Gals, and one unmarked. Marin hesitated outside the ladies' room door, hearing a screaming toddler inside. A woman's voice growled, "'Will you shut up and let me wipe you?' loud enough to be heard through the wall, and Marin tried the unmarked door. At the bank of fountain drinks, Morgan glanced over, seeing his wife, her posture hunched, standing outside the restroom door. She shook her dirty blonde head, seemingly intimidated by something. He loved her a lot, and certainly found her attractive, but it was in spite of things like this. Who knew? Maybe something like hypnotherapy could help. He turned back to his now-overflowing cup, and missed seeing Marin step into the third door, and the strange orange glow that was coming from inside it. He wiped down the side of the cup with a napkin, got a lid, discovered it was the wrong size, and found a better one. Morgan stood in line by the doors, paid for his drink, waited a minute, then went over to the restrooms. Marin did not come out. There was a kid leafing through travel brochures and maps, one finger up his nose. "'You looking for the lady?' he asked. "'A lady, yes.' "'She went in there, in the orange room.' "'Orange?' Morgan asked. But the kid only shrugged. He knocked on the unmarked door. Then, when there was no response, he opened it. It was just a closet, with a bucket, two mops, and a caution-wet-floor sign. Nothing unusual. He looked at the nose-picker, who shrugged and put his finger in his mouth. Morgan went back to the front of the truck stop, in case Marin was already at the car. She wasn't. He went back to the bathroom, thinking of how she had apologized before asking to stop. She always did stuff like that. But maybe this time she was apologizing because it was their honeymoon and she was feeling sick. He'd talk to her afterward, see if they could get on the same page. Even if she'd had to something other than, ugh, tinkle, there was no reason to be uncomfortable telling her new husband about it. He took out his phone and checked the time, then checked his email, over a dozen congratulations messages, and was reading the third or fourth one when he realized his wife still hadn't emerged from the restroom. He knocked on the gal's room door. Marin, you okay? He knocked louder. Is anybody in there? He poked his head through, but it was unoccupied. He looked around the gas station and went back to the car, just in case she was looking for him. She wasn't there. He went back inside and actually checked the men's room, though he knew Marin well enough to know she wouldn't dare go in there. The mortification of even accidentally setting foot in the wrong bathroom would stay with her all weekend. His wife was not there either. He was starting to get scared. He heard an odd sound, 
like air escaping through a big hole in a tire, and turned. The unmarked door opened, bathing him in tangerine light. Marin stepped out. But she was... different. Halloween had come early. Her hair was now completely blonde, and went down to the small of her back. She was dressed... well, she practically wasn't. She wore what looked like a leather bikini top, some kind of hard-shell bracelets, and a leather skirt or loincloth. Her legs were bare and muscled. In fact, all of her was muscled. She didn't have an ounce of fat on her arms or stomach, and yet breasts were bigger. "'Morgan, you're here,' she said, in a voice that... Even her voice had changed. She threw her arms around him, practically lifting him into the air. She pecked him quickly on the mouth. She both smelled and tasted different. Marin? What... what happened to you? We don't have much time, she said, stepping into the hall, looking around the truck stop. We need weapons. What? Weapons? She brushed past him, going toward the wall where you could buy flashlights and keychains and such. She grabbed a couple, followed by her bewildered husband. Marin, baby, what's happened to you? I'll explain in a minute. We have to get back through the portal before it closes. Portal? Is that what that was? Hey there, Marin called to the hefty lady behind the counter. She was staring at her phone, did not look up. Barmaid, Marin shouted, and only then did the woman turn her attention. Do you have any knives? Knives? Yes, daggers, big hunting knives. The woman chewed twice before answering, although she had no gum in her mouth. Like bowie knives? Yes, exclaimed Marin so loudly that all the customers glanced her way. Bowie knives are exactly what... No, just pocket knives, said the clerk. I think we got two or three left. Some Swiss army knives? Yes, pock knives will do. She turned to her husband. Have you found anything yet? She almost sounded impatient there, which was totally out of character. Me? I need weapons, she over-enunciated, as though speaking to a deaf mute. Morgan looked all around him. There were some ice scrapers on a shelf by him. He hefted the longest one, the kind with a brush on one end and a, sort of, blade on the other. How about this? That's, yes, two of those, Marin said, her eyes constantly in motion. She glanced over to where the car was parked. Is my suitcase inside? The car? Yeah. I'll grab that. I've been wearing leather panties for months. For months? She moved so fast out the door into the car that she was waiting for him by the trunk before he'd even gotten the keys out of his pocket and unlocked it. The trunk opened, there was a flurry of movement, and then she was back inside the station. This will have to do. Morgan had noticed a club, one of those steering wheel locking mechanisms, and pointed at it. What about that? It's sort of a weapon. In pointing, he lost his grip on the ice scrapers, 
and caught one, but the other dropped to the floor. Before it could hit, Marin's foot, clad in some kind of animal fur, flipped it up and into her hand. It was something a cartoon character would do. Or a ninja. Her husband gaped. Marin, what's happened to you? She put up her index finger, tabling that discussion. And Morgan, I want a Diet Pepsi, the biggest, coldest one they have. You want a fountain drink or one in a bot? We have no time, she urged. Please. He found himself running to the drink cases and opened one, grabbing a soda for his wife and nearly dropping it, too. His was still over at the register, its ice half-melted by now. Marin was already at the checkout, in the kind of stance a runner would have right before the starter pistol fired. She even had runner's legs. He made it to her side. Baby, where have you been? You'll never find out if we wait much longer. She pointed toward her hips, bare above the tight skirt. I lost my purse. Pay quickly. It was not a request more like an order. Morgan paid for everything. The woman behind the counter put it all in a big drawstring plastic bag. She was eyeing Marin in an odd way. Morgan recognized attraction there. Thanks, he said. Marin grabbed his arm, spinning him around and leading him back toward the bathrooms. Her grip was solid, tight as a vice, a circus strongman showing off. "'How?' he muttered as they approached the middle door. "'Faster!' his wife commanded. He actually slowed down then. "'Where does that lead, Marin?' She wrenched open the door. Eerie, unearthly orange light bathed them in the warmth of a gunned engine or radioactive isotope. "'A marvelous and terrible place, Morgan. I can't wait for you to see it.' "'I—' And she went forward pulling him along. As they stepped through, he had the sensation of falling, bungee-jumping without the cord. And then they were someplace else. Morgan emerged, blinking in the too-bright light. He squinted upward, his nose already telling him he was far from home before his eyes did. The feel of the air had changed, too, more humid, but with more fresh air circulating. Above him, there was an orange sky. Around him were sandy hills, blue and purple vegetation. The moon in the sky was bright and smooth, with no craters. It didn't appear to be night. No doubt about it. He was in another world. A cloud parted in the sky, revealing a smaller moon, this one green, Or maybe it was a planet. He heard his wife take a deep breath beside him and spun. She had finished her Diet Pepsi in one giant gulp. She shuddered. That tasted terrible, she exclaimed. Like a bottle of chemicals. Marin turned her head his way, a big smile on her gorgeous face. Her teeth seemed straighter, whiter. Her lips were full and pink, although she wore no makeup. Thanks, though. The air felt brisk and cold, even though there was warmth all around him. 
tropical warmth. His feet were half sunk in some kind of grass or shrubbery, or maybe it was sponge. It was purple. Somewhere a bird called, or maybe it was a frog, or possibly something in between. This was unreal. Toto, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore, quipped Morgan. Marin's smile went away. Ugh, she said. Interstellar traveler, and that's the best you can do? For the first time, and certainly not for the last, Morgan felt less than adequate in her presence. Marin slowly turned away from him, and he saw her back muscles flex, smooth, perfect tan skin where it had been fish-pale the night before. She scanned the horizon, as though searching for something, like a sentry in an old movie about the wild frontier. Morgan squinted in the direction his wife was staring, and saw what appeared to be an upside-down rainbow. That didn't seem to be what she was looking for. Interstellar, he asked, his voice a bit shakier than he liked. Baby, please explain where we are. And what happened to you? Sure, she said, not breaking her focus. This world is called Scub. As far as I know, it's in another solar system, with totally different stars visible during what short night there is. I came through in this exact space a year back, and had to make my way since then. A year? You've been here a year? Yes. Though scubbian days and nights are way different than you're used to. It was scary and hard at first, but eventually I figured it all out. You'll probably do better than I did. She looked him over. Huh. You're so much fatter than I remember. It wasn't a criticism, just a bemused observation. Fat? Morgan had lost eleven pounds for the wedding. He'd been so proud. Heck, they both were. You were only gone for a few minutes. A year passed? Well, I was stuck, she said, gazing at the horizon once again. And time works differently here. Stuck, he said, and turned to look behind him. The portal which had been big and white on this side, was now the size of a baseball. As he stared at it, it became a golf ball, then a gumball. Then it was gone. You were stuck here? Then why did we come back through? This is a good world, but it's under attack. The people here need me. They need us both. Marin's hard stare softened, and she smiled. She'd seen whatever she'd been searching. And then Morgan realized there was a ghost walking toward them, previously blocked by the portal. It was a skeleton with a thin layer of skin on it, dressed in rags and an odd apron-like covering that went over its chest, stomach, and groin. It had blue lips and big blinking brown eyes. It topped the ridge, then paused, its bony hands opening and closing. It didn't even acknowledge Morgan, simply stared at Marin. 
It was an alien, a few inches shorter than he was. It looked at his wife like the cashier had at the truck stop. Mistress, you are back. The alien's voice was delighted, lightly accented, and male. Hey, you, Marin said behind them, and Morgan knew she had to be talking to a child or a bunny rabbit. How long was I gone? Almost fifty hours. He sighed in a very human way. Cole, I nearly forgot the shape of your buttocks. A what? Morgan asked. Nothing, Marin said, and addressed the alien. Farliger, where is Zoint Fullman? Morgan turned, but it was just the three of them. The skeleton responded. Oh, he is no longer living, mistress. She made a disappointed sound. Well, that's too bad, but it sure is good to see you here. She was still talking in that overly patronizing way but it was obviously to this alien. "'What happened to him?' Morgan asked, his nervousness rising once again. "'Cor, in the end, I had to beat him with a stick and ingest him. And then I ingested the stick.' If that was true, Morgan couldn't imagine where the skeleton would have put it all. He did seem to have a bit of a beer belly behind that apron, though. "'That's all right.' Marin said. Zointfulman was a really slow runner. I have missed thee, Mistress Marine, intoned the alien. His head was bowed slightly, his huge eyes gazing up at her. Morgan, this is Farliger, one of my chief bodyguards. Hello, Morgan said, feeling awkward. Greetings, Yuma, began the creature, but was interrupted. Guess he's my only chief bodyguard now, Marin amended, and Farliger clamped closed his toothy mouth, not finishing his statement. Farliger waited until it was clear Marin was done talking, then spoke up. This is the husband you spoke of? Cor, he is so fat, like a king. He's all right, said Marin. I did worry him, being gone from there. As you did us, Farliger said. Eleven blessings from your regal thighs that you came back to us. Six, Marin said. Don't get greedy. Six, then. Mistress, might I be honored to carry your satchel? Farliger asked, indicating her suitcase. Suitcase, Farl, she corrected. Or luggage. Sure thing you can help out, but no sniffing it, all right? All right, he said disappointedly. He reached out, took the handle, deliberately touching her wrist for just a second, then grunted with exertion. He couldn't quite hold the suitcase with one arm, and barely made do with two. Here, Marin said, extending the drawstring bag from the truck stop. Why don't you carry the armaments instead? With pleasure and desire, said the skeleton. This one he managed a lot better. He's your bodyguard? Morgan repeated, trying to process the idea. 
A child could have hefted that suitcase. Farliger was actually shorter than she was, and so darn thin, almost frail-looking. Guarding you from what? Oh, from the things that fly and burrow and jump around and try to skin you. From this whole planet, really. She was smiling. A day at the health spa. I do love this place. Morgan immediately glanced around for something that might be creeping up on them. All he saw was a group of huge insects with colorful bird-like wings that flew loop-de-loops in the sky. They made disconcerting, almost farting noises, but did not fly close to them. Baby, if there's so much stuff here that can kill us, why would you love this planet? Her smile grew wider, all the way to her eyes. She was the prettiest he'd ever seen her. I love it because it can kill us, Morgan. Might you decide to return to camp now, mistress? asked the skeleton. Her smile stopped abruptly. She looked at Farliger directly. What aren't you telling me? She asked him, her voice thick with authority. His own eye contact broke. Co, I saw a pride of fire jaunches mating just beyond that ridge. By the male's eyes, they were nearly finished. Marin sighed. When they're done mating, they'll want something wet to eat. Perhaps we should get going. Yes, mistress. Most wise. Farliger turned on his heels, heading in a new direction. Morgan didn't know if it was north, south, east, or west, or if this planet even had those. Marin pivoted on her heels, almost like a dance move, and peered at the ridge where the skeleton had gestured. What are jaunches? Morgan asked her. In your condition, I think they'd be the last thing you'd ever see, she said, starting off after her friend. What did she mean? his condition. Was that another fat joke? She stopped and looked at him over her shoulder. She did not seem pleased. Come on, I won't ask again. Then she put out her hand, and as soon as he took it, she pulled him into a trot to catch up with her bodyguard. They walked a couple of miles through the oddest terrain, a combination of mud and Play-Doh, occasionally scaring vegetation which would slurp down into the ground like a hiding squirrel. At one point, a toad stuck its head out of a hole, then took a lazy hop toward them. The others seemed unconcerned. Except for having three eyes, it seemed to be an ordinary toad. Hello, the toad said, then hopped back into its hole. Morgan didn't have time to study this new marvel. Marin and the skeleton kept on walking. They carefully skirted a little spring where something like mercury was bubbling up. It smelled a lot like root-beer-flavored chapstick. There were scattered bones all around it, however. He shifted the bag to his other arm and kept moving. There was so much he wanted answers about, but when he asked a question, Marin said, We're almost at camp. He hoped that meant there would be time for explanations soon. Twice Morgan heard roaring sounds in the distance, like a lion or a dinosaur, or more likely, 
a lion with a dinosaur's head, but neither of his companions seemed to take notice. He added that to his lists of questions for later. They had reached a valley, where a coarse white sand was piled for acres, making walking difficult. The ruins of what had once been man-made habitations were crumbling here and there. Marin ignored them as they continued on their way. The sand dunes were remarkable, though very gritty, and there was a strange, sickly sweet smell in the air. The wind blew particles relentlessly into Morgan's face. "'How do you keep the sand out of your mouth?' Morgan asked Farliger. "'Sand? Co, this is grinded bone, all of this.' Morgan winced. "'And occasional teeth, mind you.' The alien's tone was like that of a cheerful tour guide. We're now in the valley of villainous infants. Do I even want to ask? He muttered and kept moving. Morgan had to struggle to keep up with his wife's sure, lengthy strides. Farliger always walked two or three steps behind, stopping when she did, like a servant in an old movie. He watched her lithe, slim legs as they moved, hypnotized by a person who'd never been very athletic, now in peak human condition. At one point, Marin paused to look around. Farliger paused, too, and Morgan caught up, breathing heavy, nearly leaning on the skeleton for support. They had entered into a blighted, gray land now. The ground cracked and occasionally blackened from fire. Quite a step down, even from the land of troublesome toddlers or whatever they'd just crossed through. This used to be the premier vacation spot in the land, Marin told him mournfully. What was it called? Paradise Found or something? Parliament Funkadelic, mistress, Farlicker reminded her humbly. Morgan thought he must have heard wrong. Right, right, his wife said. Apparently there were fields of flowers here and a bubbling brook before the evil came. Evil? said Morgan. Like a, a plague or a drought? More like a queen, wicked and bloodthirsty. Farliger recoiled beside them, as though tormented by an invisible wasp. Morgan thought it might have been at the mention of this evil queen. Marin shook her head at the loss of this place, then started downward, and the other two followed. There was an encampment down there, about five or six tents, made of purplish bamboo and some kind of animal fur. A handful of skeleton people were milling around. Two were cleaning clothes in a big ceramic pot, while another sliced vegetables into the same container. When they saw Marin approaching, they began to sing and cheer and strike at their genitals. The species were like skeletons drawn by an extremely limited child. Small, malformed, ugly, about four feet tall, meaning Farliger towered over them, all wearing the strange aprons over their bulging stomachs. Some had facial hair, and one had his hair done in little girl pigtails. Another was hunched over, tending to what looked like lobsters or crayfish, but turned out to be tiny, six-inch skeleton young, peeping and warbling like contented babies. Toto, I really don't think we're in Kansas anymore. Morgan said again. The skeleton parent clapped his hands. 
Cool! Mistress Marin said that the first time we met her. The aliens around them all laughed, remembering. <laughs> Two of them knelt at the feet of Marin. One seemed older than the rest, a whitening beard hanging from his skeleton face. The other had a bluish tinge to his skin. We were wrong, lamented the old one. So wrong, echoed the other. We feared you were gone forever. I will kill all my children for you if you wishest it. No, Quace, Marin said. Don't worry about it. And thou mayest stomp my genitals to powder if it will make amends, added the blue one. Tempting, Girk. But no, Marin said, sounding very much like a queen. At her signal, both of them rose to their feet. No, please, I despaired, he said. Please correct me. She took a short breath and kicked him in the crotch. He rolled on the ground, praising her name. Morgan thought he heard the words, and the funky bunch, in all that. She turned to the other one. I've got something for you, Quace. He actually steeled himself for a kick to the junk, but she presented him with the empty Diet Pepsi bottle instead. From my world. Thought you'd like it. I am undeserving, mistress. She spoke in a strange, stilted way. It's a royal gift. You reject it? Oh, no, he protested, taking the plastic bottle in a thin, shaking hand. I am honored. Is it to house urine? Or uh, the other thing? Neither, said Marin. But I think you'll make use of it. The old one gazed at the bottle with a gap-toothed grin and held it close to his heart. The skeleton she had disciplined glared at him with undisguised jealousy. Baby, maybe I got food poisoning, Morgan realized. I knew that pasta tasted funny, remember? I'm having a fever dream or something. Marin chuckled. Hush, Morg. This is real. All these good scubbians, they belong to me. They trust me to deliver them from Chudla and her army. Morgan squinted, taking it in. Chudla is the evil queen? he asked. The fat one blasphemes, said the bluish one. Shall I cut him, mistress? The skeleton had a sharpened bone and was looking, it seemed to Morgan, at his groin. No, no, Girk, this is my husband. He is a great warrior, too, and he'll help us destroy your oppressor. But we love thee so much, he stammered. Thou said we'd be thy husbands. What? Morgan all but spat. Marin put her hand up, quieting him. No, no. Morgan's my actual husband. I... Girk, you'll have to give my ring back. Morgan realized, with all his wife's changes, he hadn't noticed the wedding ring was missing. The skeleton with the bluish tint sniffled softly and reached into his loincloth. A moment later, tears running down his face, he held the ring out to Marin. Thank you, she said, and slid it back onto her finger. Morgan just glared at her. What? You were gone a long time, Marin said, though it made absolutely no sense. 
She walked over and began touching the skeleton children on the tops of their heads, like the Pope doling out some kind of blessing. The alien in front of Morgan wiped his nose socket, then put out his hands to him. "'Welcome to our world!' "'Thanks.' Morgan put out his hand to shake it, but that's not what the blue one was after. The skeleton quickly went around behind Morgan and used those hands to squeeze his buttocks. "'I am Girk.' "'Uh,' Morgan said, uncomfortable. "'I'm Morgan.' There was a hiss of recognition from all the creatures around him, <gasps> which numbered about twenty. "'You are the mistress's love man?' a warrior with both of his hands dyed red asked. "'Love man? I, I guess so.' "'You?' The skeleton just wasn't buying it. "'You have love from the marine?' Morgan smiled at that. Yes. You did make the copulation with her? I... He shrugged. They all made sounds of awe and envy. <laughs> oh. mm. Morgan found himself blushing. The oldest looking of the creatures nodded at him, coming close. Morgan, you are called? He asked. Yeah. I am Quace, former leader of the Scubians. Master Morgan, I pledge my life to you. Your queen is not merely a great beauty, but a great warrior, having slain many of our enemies. Together we feasted on the bodies of the encroacher hordes. That last bit was announced with a combination of pride and longing. What? They were delicious. You'd like them, Marin said. Like Twizzlers, just with more blood. Have you brought weapons, mistress? asked Quace. Yes, said Marin. My husband has them in a bag. Four pocket knives, a bowie knife, two ice scrapers, and a steering wheel club. Merciful goddess, my uncles will become great champions with these mystical tools. "'Hand them out, sweetheart,' Marin said, and Morgan obeyed. The skeleton people lined up, each hoping for a handout. Since Farliger was the biggest and presumably strongest, Morgan gave him the club. But it was much too heavy for his thin arms to wield, like giving a child a sledgehammer, so he got a pocket knife instead. He squeezed Morgan's butt in appreciation. "'Like you do.' A moment later... All the weapons were gone, but more hands were outstretched, hoping for one of their own. The scubian with little girl pigtails pointed to the empty bag, and Morgan handed it to him. Seven thanks, master,' the little creature said, and went off as though he'd been given a great gift. Meanwhile, Marin was speaking to Quace, who clearly had the most authority and confidence of her followers. "'Where is everyone?' she asked. Alas, Corv and Chidister believed you would never return. They travelled their tribes to the insanity plains to make quick babies. By the lovely navel of the Marin, may they live their lives in peace. She sighed. So, how many are left? Only twenty-two of the faithful mistress— 
twenty-one minus poor Zointfulman. He is now jerky, if you want some. I heard. No, thank you. Fourteen apologies, mistress. If you like, I will take my scrotum and— Never mind that, she said. Morgan was confused. Constantly. Marin observed this and said, The world of scub was invaded by— Quace interrupted, though it seemed to pain him to do so. Many sorries, but tis called Chudlandia now. Marin grumbled. Oh, yeah. Around the time I first came here, the world got invaded by an evil horde, led by a woman called Chudla. Oh, Morgan, she is such a bitch. Farlager and Quace hid their faces when she said this, as if avoiding lightning bolts. She killed, I don't know, half the population when she arrived, Marin continued. Like a million skeleton people like these, just to show she could, to, you know, make a statement of dominance. Girk, the blue one, began to cry quietly. She's a, an alien? Morgan asked. Yes, Marin said. Like you and me. Nasty, evil, but with the smoothest skin you ever saw. She shook her head. Chudla tried to recruit me to her side, and when I refused, sent one of her enforcers to eliminate me. Fortunately, I crushed her head with a turtle shell. Again, Farliger bowed his head at the remembrance. Morgan was shocked. You killed her? Yeah. Oh, I forgot to explain. Women are really rare here. They're warriors and leaders. Gods, even. Morgan glanced around at the group again. They did all appear to be male, though with how skinny they were, it was hard to tell. Plus they give the blessed menstruation, Girk threw in, reverence in his voice. Did you not know this, Morgan, sir? Um, yeah. Have you witnessed this miracle? Quace wanted to know. What? No, not personally. Nor have I. The hallowed queen would not show me. But I have not yet given up hope. Just ignore him, honey, said Marin. Quace put a hand on Morgan's rear end. Hope has returned to our land with your good woman, he said, so all could hear. She has saved so many of us, we will all name our heirs after her. There was a reaction from the Scubbians, some venerating, some mumbling, some weeping softly. Old Quace shouted in a quavering voice, All yearn for Mistress Nadler! And they gave a cheer. Oh, yes! <laughs> it gave Morgan pause, though. Nadler was not his last name. That ridiculous moniker was Marin's maiden name. Marin put up her hand, stilling the praise. Gather your people in the training square. Let's try to put these weapons to use. 
Quace bowed his head and walked away, gathering the dozen or so forces around him, then heading off to bring in the stragglers. Morgan took his wife aside, speaking softly. Marin, how is it the aliens all speak English? Well, we couldn't understand them if they didn't, could we? To say that she sounded condescending was an understatement. Right, but did you teach it to them? How do they learn it? It's their language, Morg. They teach each other. What, English is an alien language? No, maybe they don't speak English. He shook his head. That makes no sense. Get used to it. Maybe you're speaking scub right now. Oh, and to them, you're the alien. Try to remember that. Well, you're an alien too, then. No, I'm a goddess. There's a difference. Morgan squinted at her. She spoke so directly, so much more bluntly now, that he hardly recognized her. Baby, if the days are different here... Yes, yes, she interrupted. The days are super long and the nights are super short. If that's the case, how do you know you've been here a year? I counted, Morg. Believe me, it's been a year. He accepted this, but now he had a new question. The portal, the one we came through, it took that long to reappear. That's right. All of a sudden, his confusion gave way to anger. Whoa, whoa, so you pulled me through the doorway, knowing I'd be stuck a year out here? How could you be so selfish? Her eyes flashed. Selfish? These people, the few that are left? Without me, they'd lose their whole planet, as well as their lives. Now who's being selfish? Morgan couldn't help but wilt at that glare. Well, I didn't mean... And the gateway will open again in less than an Earth week, Morgan, she said, as though explaining to a child that summer follows spring. It's a leap year. She didn't wait to see if he had more questions. She simply stepped back to the group of scubbians who were looking on, ever vigilant, yet ever patient. Where is Chudla's army right now? On the edge of the sea, mistress, said Kirk. Queen Chudla and her forces have mown down all who stand in her way. Quace made a dejected sound. Alas, I am afraid the planet is hers. Suddenly Farlager sprang into action, kicking Quace square in the nuts. Speak not more negativity, Quace. Our beloved has returned, and we shall triumph. The old man was on his knees, coughing and holding his loincloth, but he was nodding. Farliger raised his voice so all could hear. My noble brethren, by tomorrow we shall all be filled with the brains of our enemies, and perhaps we can watch Lady Marin bathe again. The skeleton men cheered at that, a look of grateful lust on their faces. Morgan pushed away his scowl and quickly put a more neutral expression on his own face. 
No more talk of Chudla, proclaimed Marin. No more despair. We must train. The group, which was just over twenty skeleton men, broke into two perfect orderly lines facing one another. It was as though they had done this a million times, coming as knee-jerk natural as clapping deep in the heart of Texas. Rush forward, she shouted, and they did. Strike, she called, observing their maneuvers. They began to throw punches, swing sticks, and parry with rocks. Some of the blows missed, some of the blows were blocked, but several of them connected. They were not pulling their punches. It looked so brutal, and one actually fell over, his arm neatly broken. "'You there!' Marin called to the injured man. "'You will be our finoche carrier. Then, when you have healed, you will have to be grandmother.' The wounded man, his arm swinging horribly at his side, bowed and marched back to the big tent, crying quietly. Marin turned once again to her little army. Mlat, attack my husband. The scubbian with the red-dyed hands didn't hesitate. He ran toward Morgan, crossing half the distance while Morgan was still saying, What? Wait, what? Defend yourself, Morg, Marin directed. Morgan blocked a vicious swing with the ice scraper, but deflected it so hard it flew from Mlat's hand. Emlat leapt at Morgan, attempting to bite his throat, and Morgan yelped and pushed him away. The skeleton warrior flew backward and landed hard on the dune, writhing in pain. Farliger rushed over and helped the fallen one to stand. He spat sand from his mouth, trembling from the pain of his injury. Marin gave Emlat a satisfied nod, and that was all the scubbian needed. He hobbled back to the line and attempted to continue training with the others. "'Oy, gah!' Farliger declared, stepping over to Morgan. He tried to pat his backside, but Morgan, adrenalized, jerked out of the way. "'Truly you are a fine warrior, worthy to kiss the bosoms of our queen.' "'I... uh, I hope so,' Morgan said. He couldn't believe his success there. He had absolutely no military training, and hadn't been in a fight since junior high school, and that had been at a pickup basketball game at church. But the encounter didn't even last thirty seconds, and it had not been close. Marin signaled for him to come near. She spoke quietly into his ear. These people are weak, Morgan. Physically, psychologically. It's sad, really. Guess that's why Chudla has been able to conquer them so easily. Her forces are few, but any of them are a match for these. Are you sure I'm not dreaming this? he asked. Her voice grew hard. Do not ask that again, husband, or you'll dig the latrine tomorrow. He winced. Uh, sorry, force of habit. I forget you are like an infant to this world, lost and unknowing and helpless. He appreciated her not saying and fat for once, though that was little consolation. Oh, that's me, he deadpanned. She gave him the same approving nod she gave her soldiers. 
they can use you, a positive example of a male for a change, to inspire them. Morgan began to nod, but stopped himself. Baby, you said that portal opens again in a couple of days. When it does, we'll go back through it, right? You and me? Of course. She narrowed her eyes. Do you doubt my word? This was so far from the woman he'd woken up next to that morning. She couldn't even pass for Marin's sister, who'd been something of the bully of the family. I'm just saying, he said. We're on our honeymoon, and... She tossed the hair from in front of her face. And we still will be when we emerge on the other side. No, baby, that's not what I'm saying. He took her arm. I don't want to take part in a war. This is crazy. Lower your voice, Marin hissed, removing his hand from her muscular arm. They'll murder you if they hear you contradict me. Don't think they won't. They dream about taking your place in my bed. Especially Farliger. Delightful. So I can't argue with you in front of them. Is that what you're telling me? Her jaw tightened. You can't argue with me at all. The Scubbians love to deal out punishment, Morg. It's a cultural thing. Invariably, that means kicks, punches, even bites to the private parts. What? Shh. She tossed her head toward two nearby skeletons. I need you to go show these two how to use the scrapers, while I train the ones with knives. I don't know anything about weaponry, let alone— Just do it, she snapped. She raised a seductive eyebrow at him. You know, I may open-mouthed kiss you if you do well in this task. Well, okay. Morgan stood up straighter, attracted to the offer. He approached the two armed with ice scrapers. Girk was one of them. We heard her censor you, he said consolingly. She is hard, but fair. Right, Morgan said. Well, I'm supposed to help you use those weapons there. What are their names? Girk asked. What, like Joe and Frank? Or do you mean what are the scrapers called? Ah, scrapers. Girk said, his question answered. The other scubbian, a hefty sort, for a skeleton, held up his ice scraper. Which one is mine, Joe or Frank? Morgan shook his head. Never mind. I think mine is Joe, whispered Girk to the other. Any more stupid questions? Morgan asked. Have you kissed the queen, then? asked the heavy-set one. His name was Rejoth. Queen Chadma? Morgan asked. No, our queen, the Lady Marin. Yeah, I, I kiss her all the time. Could I smell your breath, master? No. I kissed the queen once, Girk boasted. Her hand smelled like the place of good sleep after a life of honor. Her hand, Morgan said, 
before jealousy could grab hold of him. You kissed her hand. Very fortunate, Girk, said Rejoth. Okay, Morgan said, gesturing at the cheap plastic weapons. Let's see what you can do with those. The two scubbians practiced balancing the ice scrapers, spinning them in their arms, using the sharp end to stab while grooming themselves with the brush end. They had apparently never seen a brush before, and were enchanted with the possibilities. Morgan didn't know how to train a soldier, but he had them thrust with the blade and pull back, then chop the air with it directly where a person's throat would be. The two skeletons moved as one, as though they'd been rehearsing this all day. "'Are you two brothers?' Morgan asked. "'Gurk and me?' Rejoth thought this was quite hilarious. "'What?' "'But I have six ribs and four nipples, while Gurk has eight and two. How could we be brothers?' Morgan couldn't say. With their little aprons on, how would he count ribs and nipples? And, of course, why would he? And my flesh has blue mottles, while Rejoth's is solid tone, Gert pointed out. Now that he mentioned it, Morgan could see a bit of a difference there, and the shape of their chests was noticeably dissimilar. Rejoth squinted in offense. He thinks we all look the same. No, Girk Albert shouted. Do not speak such things about the lady's love man. He is above that. Girk gazed up at Morgan. Should I pound his testes, sir? What? No. Morgan looked over where his wife was training the other men. Her posture was sure-footed and confident and unrecognizable as the woman he had just married. He looked back at the two skeletons. I'm new here, and confused about a lot of things. Like Marin was, I'll bet, when she first came here. She is never confused, Rejoth said, testy once again. She is fertile and wise. Well, I'm not, snapped Morgan, and the two cringed back from him, as though he'd been screaming at them. I'm... He softened his tone. I'm just going to need some help getting used to things here, all right? All right. I am sorry, Master, Rejoth said, suddenly all meekness and obedience. Yes, we will help you, Girk said. He remembered what Marin told him earlier, about how easily the Scubbians were conquered, and how, without meaning to... He had practically put the red-handed warrior in the hospital. He needed to be gentle and cheery, like dealing with a bunch of preschoolers. Preschoolers who all seemed to have a thing for his wife. You two are both men, right? He asked them quietly. Adults? Males? Yes, Girk said, then reached for the bottom of his tunic. Would you like to see? No, thanks. Morgan replied. He'd had his fill of weirdness for the day. For the month, probably. But are there no women here? Women? repeated Rejoth. Women, girls, ladies, Morgan tried to clarify. You know. He made the universal hourglass symbol with his hands. 
I think he wants to see your inseminator, Girk, Rejoth suggested. No, I just wondered if there are females, said Morgan, in your village. Females? Rejoth asked. Why need we more when Mistress Nadler is here? Right. Morgan pushed his frustration way down. It wasn't easy. But wives, scubbian women, he hinted. You know, we are wives to the mistress, the alien said proudly. Yes, Girk added. I washed her bosom clothes once, he sighed wistfully. He never tires of this story, Rejoth groused. Morgan stopped this line of questioning. But I thought you, one of you, made babies or something. Yes, said Girk. I have two. I call them Marin. One even has hair, added Rejoth, a bit grudgingly. One day I, too, will be a father. If I survive that long. He sounded pretty resigned to his fate. That sobered Morgan a bit pointing him back toward the task at hand. Okay, guys, he said, trying to sound authoritative. Show me how you fight. To the death? asked Rejoth, as though that wouldn't be a bad thing. What? No, j just for practice. They fought. It was vicious, with no holding back. Soon there were bloody cuts on Rejoth's arms, on both their knuckles, and on Girk's skinny, bluish chest. Morgan was impressed with their exertion, their ferocity. Okay, stop, guys. The skeletons were panting, obviously winded, but they seemed energized. I like this weapon, said Girk. But what is the non-bladed side for? The brush? I don't know. I never use it. Morgan heard his wife's voice cry out and turned. She was doing battle with two, no, three scubbians, all of them armed with knives. She held only a stick. As he watched, two of them stabbed out at her, and she knocked one blade away and dodged the other, her body moving like a well-oiled machine. The third attacker was sneaking up behind her, but she rolled forward, back on her feet in time to kick him right in the forehead. He went down but the other two moved in sync, swinging their knives together so they could not miss. Marin dropped flat into the sand, the blades passing above her, then bounded up again, slamming her stick into the throat of the closest skeleton. This seemed to take absolutely no effort, as though she had been doing this since childhood, being carried by decades-old muscle memory. And she was bloodthirsty, moving like a trained martial artist, like an exotic jungle cat, like a gay Cirque du Soleil performer. Morgan longed to touch her, as though he had been the one away for an entire year. Yes, Girk breathed by his side. You love her too. Sure I do, Morgan admitted. I saw her first, said Girk. Morgan frowned. Oh, yeah? Well, look at this. He held up his ring finger. That means she belongs to me. To 
"'Do not say such things,' said Rejaf in a shaky voice. "'We belong to the Queen. She does not belong to anyone.' Morgan realized his mistake. "'Look, what I meant was—' "'Could I have that?' interrupted Girk, eyeing the wedding band. "'I'd give you the lives of my children for that. One has hair.' Rejoth stood up straighter. "'Well, I will kill everyone in this camp for the finger and the ring it holds.' "'Um, no,' Morgan told them. "'Oh, please,' whined Girk. "'That's all right,' mumbled Rejoth. "'She loves only Farliger, anyway.' Girk fished inside his loincloth and pulled out one of Marin's long, blonde hairs. He wrapped it around his own bony finger. "'See? Now she belongs to me, too.' "'Blasphemy, Girk,' Rejoth said. "'Oh, right,' he realized. And Rejoth struck Girk sharply in the junk with the brush end of the snow-scraper. Morkin walked away. So that was what it was for. All right, that is where we are going to pause for today. And gosh, I should have warned you. I, I, is it too late to go back and warn them about the content? You're dead. We talked about scatologicalism. Is that a word? It is now. When I say something, it becomes a word. Okay. Look, I, I maybe I should have warned you that this is a very absurd story. Nonsensical. Stuff like that. I don't know. It's not going to be to everybody's liking. But hey, I wrote it. That's not going to be to everybody's liking. Uh, that's where we're going to quit for today. I, I don't suppose I'll say much about the story here. This will be like the very long episode of the story and short episode of me talking about the story and the next one will do a shorter part and then I'll talk a little bit more about it. But I remember I was on the set of a Steven Soderbergh film. And was it a film? It was Well, it was a film for HBO and I wasn't an extra, but I had gotten my nephew, who was eight at the time, a gig as an extra. And it was the first time that he had done that. And I thought that he might be interested in it, thought that he might enjoy having a little bit of money. But yeah, it wasn't something that he liked very much. I There were other opportunities later, and I did submit him for one, I think. But he made it known that it wasn't something that he enjoyed. But instead of me being an extra, I was a chaperone. I was a parent. And so I went into holding where they keep all of the extras. And then I never got to leave holding except for to eat lunch. And I guess that's boring. I mean, it's, it's frustrating to be there and to be around film equipment and actors and, you know, Steven Soderbergh and not be able to participate. But Ah, well. So what I did was I sat down and I started to write this story. And I just thought it would be fun for Marshall's contest to write, you know, Journey into Another Dimension. 
I had written a story, and I believe that I shared it on this program, about the two policemen that I always write about, officers Orton and Rushton, although I think eventually Ben Rushton got promoted to sergeant. But I had written a story where they investigated the disappearance of a woman in a restroom at a Del Taco. And I don't know that it's irony, but I'm almost to that Del Taco right now while I'm driving. I just happened to be driving in that direction on that road. Yeah, there was a Del Taco that I ate lunch at one time while I was working, and I came up with this idea. And I think it was because I was facing the restroom while I was eating, and I saw, I, I'm, I'm going to say a pretty lady go into the restroom. And I noticed pretty ladies, yeah, it's a problem with me really has to stop. But I didn't ever notice her come out. And I'm sure what happened was, you know, that I got a napkin or, you know, was opening a hot sauce packet or something like that. And she stepped out while I was doing that, while I was distracted, just in that little window. But I kept looking for her to come out because she was pretty. And that's, you know, what you do, what I do, yeah. Uh, and she never came out. And I thought about it so I came up with this idea of a woman goes into the Del Taco restroom and she never comes out. And from time to time, people will go into that and they're gone. You remember the story, right? I called it ladies room. And ultimately, Officer Orton goes into that restroom and he disappears as well. And that's the last appearance of Orton, even though there had been probably 10 stories that I had written with those two cops in it. That was, that was it for him. I liked that idea. I liked the idea of there being just a portal that opened and it was in an ordinary place. It's a little bit like the wardrobe in the Narnia book. And I don't know that I ever wanted to revisit it, although I, sometimes I did. I write the dead and breakfast stories. And I considered having a story where Ben Rushton goes to the Noble Oaks bed and breakfast and his partner is the ghost that shows up. But I, I never did it. I, it doesn't mean I won't. But yeah, I thought about that. You know, I, I think Rushton goes in and he's calling Orton's cell phone and he's in the restroom and he hears it ringing. And it's it's there in the room that it's ringing, but it's far, far away, if I recall that story correctly. And I always thought about maybe doing a story where he, the portal opens again and he's able to go after his partner. You know, I, I had the idea that maybe Orton comes back through the portal and it, a great deal of time has passed. He's been assumed dead and uh, his wife has had a child, his child, and the child is, I don't know, three or four, maybe, and she has remarried, and now here he is, having these years taken away from him. It's also similar, though, to New Year's Day, to that idea. I'm starting to re rework ideas, starting to re repeat myself, and I guess that's not good. Sorry. I've talked about that with Stephen King 
you know, like it was like 1983 when Christine came out. Maybe it was before that. And then he wrote a story, a book about another haunted car. And then he wrote a story or a novella called, I want to say Route 81, about another haunted car. And while all three of those stories are different, they're on the surface about haunted cars. And it's just like, wow, he's really, really retreading this, this idea again. But, you know, it might be just something that he can't let go of. I've certainly felt that myself. And I'm not nearly as prolific as King is. Prolific isn't the word. I always use that word, but that's not the word that I want, is it? Productive. Anyway, I never wrote the Rushton Orton reunion story, but I feel like this probably works better with it being, you know, the newlyweds. Or it doesn't, if you didn't like the story. Uh, Do I establish that they're on their honeymoon? I think so. You know, I think I'm just going to let you go, mostly because I'm sitting in a parking lot, shivering. Yeah, I said the sun was shining. What, 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 was, what, what was up with that? It's a long enough story I could have split it into three sections. And then uh, I'll come back and we'll talk about the, the, the second half. And uh, I, I do hope that you liked it. And if you didn't, well, it's, uh, there's not a lot of stories I've written like this. So chances are you won't have to uh, put up with that kind of thing very often. I do thank you for listening, and uh, I will talk to you soon. Uh, And just, you know, steer clear of restrooms altogether. Good night. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. This burlap sack filled with squirming madness was produced under a Creative Commons Attribution No Derivatives 3.0 license. That sounds crazy too, I realize, but it means that you may download and copy the files free of charge, but they do not belong to you. Hence, you cannot charge for them or alter them for your own perfidious purposes. Wow, perfidious? Yes, like your taint. Wait, what? Perfidious. I'm not sure the word can be used that way. And I'm not sure a Sean Connery impression can be used this way, boy. And yet here we are. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Uh, Please continue. The music used in the episode was provided by Sir Kevin MacLeod, available from his website incompetech.com under its own Creative Commons license, And I urge you to consider going to www.patreon.com forward slash Rish Outfield to support the show if you would enjoy more of this madness. Good night. Much akin to the one that lured Luke into its... Much akin to the one li- what much akin to the one that lured Luke into trouble, only larger. Yet Han Solo gallops his snow lizard confidently toward the black. God, it's hard for me to explain just how hard to read this is. This is a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox, I think. In upper natural caves, hollowed 
Uh, there's a there's a note here I can't make out. It, it, it says the upper natural curves hollowed out into laser gun implements and radar. I don't know. I'm going to say installations, all constructed to be invisible. Captain Solo, the princess. Captain Solo, the princess Leia wishes. The princess Leia wishes you. The princess Leia wishes you to a report. Captain Solo, the Princess Leia wishes you to report to her immediately. Well, that's just what I... Well, that's what I just... Well, that's what I just... Interior, inner hall, day... Interior, inner hall, day, at door. She, officer, officer, she's in the war room on the third level. Soldier, escort, Captain... I know the way. Chewie comes in, wiping his paws on oily waist. <laughs> wiping his paws on oily waist and talking a blue streak. Han laughs and pats his huge chest. You're not any more bored than I am, Chewie. I never thought I'd go for a... S shit. I don't recognize that word either. I'd go for a soldier? So... I never thought I'd go for a soldier. I never thought I'd... Thought is wrong. I never though I'd God for a soldier. I never thought I'd be a... Never thought I'd be a... Never thought I'd be much good for a soldier. And I doubt if I can put up with it. And I doubt if I can put up with it much longer. You just keep the old falcon in. You just keep the old falcon in with... Damn it. You just keep the old falcon in. So I will uh, leave you there. And uh, we'll be back soon. I appreciate you listening. I hope that you liked what you heard and that you would like to hear more. And uh, that's it.